All right, we ready? Who's there? Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Drew. He runs Drew. everything. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Hey everybody, I'm Kai Rizdal. Welcome back to Make Me Smart. I guess that applies to me too because I've been gone. I'm back. <laughs> when we make Welcome where back. we make today makes sense. It's Monday, the 10th of April today. And we are so glad to have you back. I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone else as well. Uh, We've got news and we've got smiles to get to. So we're going to dive right in with the news fix. And I suppose we should get the worst news done first because, as I was saying to you before the show, Mm -hmm. I feel like we cannot make it through a week of the show without having to talk about another mass shooting. Yeah, this one today in Louisville, uh, a 23-year-old employee went into a bank in Louisville and started shooting. I think four people are dead as it stands now, nine wounded. And I I don't even know what to do with this. It has become routine. As somebody said on one of the cable shows today, we've had 150 mass shooting incidents and we're barely uh, four months into the year, three and a half months into the year. It, It... I don't know how long this is sustainable in a democratic society. I just don't. I just don't. And I don't know what to do with it. Don't know what to do with it. I don't either, but I also don't particularly love that response for myself, you know, because it's the... It makes me feel like you're kind of throwing up your your hands and being like, mm-hmm. oh, what can mm-hmm. we do? We can't mm-hmm. do anything. And that's exactly mm-hmm. how the system perpetuates. But your point is valid. It's like what else can be done? Well, because without meaningful change in, in our lawmakers, nothing right. will be that, done. That's, right. That That's the throw the hands up piece, right? Because – if Republicans in the Tennessee, and I'm mixing my shootings here, so, you know, bear with me, but if Republicans in the Tennessee legislature can expel two young black men for demanding gun control legislation because they have a supermajority, what is there to be done other than change the lawmakers? Yeah, you know? I think that's what it comes down to at this point, if, yeah. if this is yeah. change the lawmakers. Yeah, yeah totally. What's your other one? Uh, all right. So anyway, that's you know, I just I wanted to mark that, so I think that's why I yeah. put that in the rundown. That's that's all. Yeah, we have uh, to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, you go because mine's less significant than yours. My other one. Uh, okay, there are uh, two really meaningful court cases, uh, <laughs> pretty much making a beeline for the Supreme Court mm-hmm. at this point yeah. related to abortion pills. So a Texas judge that's known to be very friendly to the anti-abortion movement, um, you know, basically said that the FDA overstepped in approving, and I'm going to try to say it right, is it missed? Mm. Mifepristone. Mifepristone, thank you. Mifepristone. That, um, and therefore that the approval that the FDA made for allowing this to be, you know, sold directly to consumers should be suspended, right? Uh, And then either 20 minutes before or 20 minutes after, I'm sort of losing track of the timeline, in Washington state, a judge held that the abortion pill should remain accessible. Mm. And usually when two federal judges have opposite rulings, that kicks it to the Supreme Court. Because 
these federal judges are supposed to be able to make decisions that affect federal law that therefore affects the whole country. So when you have dueling opinions like this, it gets kicked up to the Supreme Court. And uh, providers don't necessarily know what to do. In the meantime, you have drug makers, Pfizer, Biogen, hundreds of U.S. drug makers who are calling for the Texas judge to, um, you know, turn back the ruling and that it ignores, uh, in their letter, they said it ignores decades of scientific evidence and legal precedent. They're calling for a reversal of the decision. The White House wants this decision reversed. Of course, the Justice Department is appealing the decision uh, and in particular asking that the impact of the decision be held off uh, until the, you know, confusion can be cleared up. In the meantime, uh, Republican lawmakers at the federal level have not been so outspoken about celebrating this. And the Washington Post has a really interesting analysis piece by Aaron Blake about this, because as they learned after the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe versus Wade, this is not a great issue for them. It's great with their base, but it's not great with the general population. And poll after poll after poll is showing that they are certainly losing younger voters, but they're kind of disenfranchising lots of voters by digging in on this issue. So a lot of Republicans have been very quiet about this decision, and they do Mm -hmm. not necessarily want this to be – to define yet another election cycle for them. And the Democrats, of course, would love for that to happen. But that's one of the big reasons they got uh, a a negative turnout, shall we say, or a less positive turnout (laughs) than they'd anticipated uh, in the midterm elections. Yeah, yeah. As as, uh, Charlie Sykes, who is a former Republican, he's one of many former Republicans who have said this, the Republican Party today has boxed itself in on abortion. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it truly has. It is between a rock and a very hard place. Uh, okay, so here's my other one. It's a huge piece of the New York Times today about climate change and Bitcoin. And let me just say that Bitcoin, far from being the panacea of all things monetary, and we're going to fix uh, the way we pay for things in this economy, it comes at a huge cost uh, environmentally. And I'll just read you a couple of little tidbits from here. An operation in Dalton, Georgia is using nearly as much power as the surrounding 97 households. And I should be more clear. It's not the use of Bitcoin. It's not the, the existence of Bitcoin. It's the mining of Bitcoin. It's the enormous computer centers that get set up, which suck huge amounts of energy to do the computer calculations necessary to get the Bitcoin. Here's another one. Riot Platforms Mine in Rockdale, Texas, uses about the same amount of electricity as the nearest 300,000 homes. It's just, we think it's a panacea and fun, and gosh, it's great digital money, but it comes at a huge cost, and it is not to be overlooked. It's just really not great. Not great. You know, we did a story on tech that about Ethereum um, mm-hmm, 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 doing mm-hmm. this thing called yep. the merge, where they change the, change, the way right. that you mined, uh, you mine Ethereum. And it was a huge deal. And it basically put all of these Bitcoin miners out of business um, mm-hmm. if you were mining Ethereum. And I was just um, looking up what the impact was. And according to The Verge, when they made that transition, Ethereum's electricity use 
was expected to drop by 99.988% mm-hmm. mm-hmm. post-merge. Yeah. And yeah. to use from to drop from using 23 million megawatt hours per year to 2600 megawatt hours per year to help visualize how massive this is a report compared this reduction to the Eiffel Tower shrinking to the size of a Lego toy person so <laughs> <laughs> sorry that's there right. is it's a great comparison there is uh something to be done about this um oh, yeah. but you know as much as the Bitcoin, you know, celebrants like to talk about being, you know, sort of separated and apart from the moneyed interest of the establishment. In some ways, they're now tied to their own industry because you, mm-hmm. you know, if you make a change like that and your Bitcoin miners are going to come after you because there are billions and billions and billions of dollars being made off of these operations that people probably don't want to go away. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. It's a huge story. Mm-hmm. Huge climate change story. Yeah. Uh, For sure. Uh, Drew, shall we? Yeah. All right. I, you go. I'm so in love with my story today. <laughs> <laughs> it made me, like, I was reading, I was in the Scientific American today looking at something else, because why not? Uh, and I saw this story in the Scientific American which directed me to a local TV station in New Orleans that did a story about two teenagers in New Orleans who, high school students, who gave a presentation at the American Mathematical Society's annual Southeastern Conference proving basically the, they basically proved the Pythagorean theorem using trigonometry without circular logic. All of that is very complicated. I'm going to do my best here. But basically, this is something that mathematicians have been trying to prove for nearly 2,000 years. And these two high school girls seem to have done it. And so, okay, I'm going to try to summarize this. Basically, if you went back to high school and you learned about the Pythagorean theorem, uh, this was the idea that it's an equation to calculate the longer side of a right triangle by summing the squares of the other two sides. So if you can visualize this back in high school, you're sitting there and you're looking at a triangle and they would have you draw boxes off the two shorter legs of the triangle and use the area of those boxes to calculate the area of the bigger box for the third side, and then you'd from there deduce the length. The The theorem is often phrased as A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Mm-hmm. Now then, the way that they've proven this uh, before is, you know, with algebra and geometry and trigonometry was not able to be used to prove this. I'm botching this. It's real complicated. But anyway, (laughs) they were able to do it (laughs) because they're smarter than me in math. And so the fact that these two girls did it and it looks like that they're going to be submitting um, their proof for uh, peer review and everything. They're just very cute. It made me smile and it made me realize just how much of high school algebra I have completely forgotten. Oh, my God. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, man. You kidding me? <laughs> Joanne Chamberlain. If if you're listening to this, Mrs. Chamberlain, Joanne Chamberlain from my ninth grade algebra class, I'm really sorry for not paying attention because holy cow, this stuff I feel like ninth grade was that moment that I really had that transition from feeling like I was good at math to feeling like I wasn't. And oh. apparently that's like a real crucial moment for a lot of people, especially young women <laughs> in particular, because depending on how, you know, your teacher reacts yeah. to you in this yeah. moment yeah. of crisis yeah. can kind of determine whether you go into STEM or not, it seems. Yeah. Um, but I really do love like hearing and reading about math. There's um, this YouTube channel that I love called Number File that just talks about really big, complicated math problems in a relatively simplistic way. And it's just, it makes me feel a little smarter every time I watch it. Good on you. Good on you. Can I have a little credit, yeah. by the way, for pulling my ninth grade math teacher's name out of thin yes. freaking air? Yes, you Something can. Something like 40 Absolutely. years later, a little, little more than that anyway. That was oh, impressive. My goodness. Oh, my goodness. Anyway. Uh, okay, so here's mine. It's a little geeky, not as weedy as Kimberly's, but it's a little geeky. <laughs> so there's a pa- there's a paper out from uh, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, uh, uh, Virginia, the Quantitative Supervision and Research Group, two researchers there who work for the Fed. The Fed has, uh, as you know, many, 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 many economic and statistical PhDs. Here's the thing they wanted to study. Can chat GPT decipher FedSpeak. FedSpeak is, of course, the language that the Federal Reserve Bank uses, both the governors and, in their statements, the actual board itself, to describe monetary policy and how they think the economy is going. The most egregious example, of course, is Alan Greenspan, who took great pride Mm -hmm. in not being understood and said, actually, to a congressperson, I believe, if you understand what I'm saying, Senator, then clearly I've made a mistake. He really wanted to not be understood. Anyway, so these people ran, these researchers ran FedSpeak through ChatGPT, which, by the way, I learned what GPT stands for. It's called Generative Pre-Training Transformer. Hmm. That's what it is. It's a model called Generative Pre-Training Transformer. Anyway, the short answer is, and here's the abstract, yes, ChatGPT can decipher FedSpeak, and here's what it says. The technology can, therefore, either be hugely time-consuming or resource-saving, and it can result, or it can result in misleading and wrong conclusions. We set out to test our hypothesis in the context of FedSpeak. So they ran these, these announcements from the Federal Reserve through FedSpeak and decided to see whether it was dovish, neutral, or hawkish, that is to say, easy on interest rates, neutral, or very uh, worried about inflation and interest rates. And so the short answer is, yes, ChatGPT does better than most other uh, artificial intelligence uh, platforms in deciphering FedSpeak. So that means, like, in 18 months, I'm out of a job. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. Oh, I'm sure. That's all I'm saying. Jay Powell is going to come and do a press conference. Jay Powell is going to do a press conference, and I'm just going to run it through ChatGPT. Actually, that's what I should do. Run it through (laughs) ChatGPT next time and see what it says. Anyway, there you Look, go. That's my very geeky make me smile. My sister has what? been using yeah. ChatGPT so much. And every day she's telling me about something new that she's doing with this software. And I'm just like, wow. Well, so so I, I told you. So Liv, my, my daughter was doing math homework a, a number of weeks mm-hmm. ago and couldn't get something and ran it through ChatGDP and couldn't get it and couldn't get it and didn't get it to work. And she called my wife over. My wife is the math parent in the household. I am the American political history since 1865 parent in our household, which means Uh I never get called on. My wife got called over and they ran it through and ChatGPT was wrong. 
which is not unheard of, but it's a little scary that like high school kids are using this to help them with their work and it's wrong. You know, oh, it's like the early days of so Wikipedia. M- there's so much wrong stuff on there. There's this. Yeah. Um, there's all these people trying out new ways to work with Chat mm-hmm, GPT, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. there's this one website that's in development called Have I Been Encoded, which is to find out what AI knows about you. And I put myself hmm. into in there to see what Chat GPT three says about me. And and the little excerpt that I got was Kimberly Adams is an American journalist and anchor for PBS NewsHour Weekend. She is also a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and a contributor to NPR's Morning Edition. Yeah, buddy. None of those things are true. That's great. Not a single oh, one. Oh, man. You should update your bio stat. <laughs> Oh, man. That's pretty funny. I kind of love that. But the thing is, it sounds very realistic, right? Oh, sure. Very realistic. Because, like, it's plausible. Somebody who knows vaguely who you are would say, oh, yeah, she's on the news hour. Yeah, that makes sense. Public public radio. Yeah. Right. Public public media, something. You bet. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. Well. That is it for us today on this Monday. Uh, Tomorrow, please join us for our weekly deep dive. And appropriately, (laughs) this week we're digging into the cultural impact of chat GPT and other AI tools. I swear that's not why I brought that up. I'd forgotten for a second. (laughs) No, but it's great. It's great. Until then, though, keep sending us your questions, your comments, your suggestions, your, your chat GPT exercises you would like to have done. 508-UB-SMART is how you can do that. 508-UB-SMART. Email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. Both of those ways will get a hold of us. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Today's program was engineered by Drew Jostad. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter, and our intern is Antonio Barreras. Marissa Cabrera is still the acting senior producer of this podcast. Bridget Bonner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. What was the best thing you ate when you were away? Oh, I had carbonara. That for the best carbonara. I'm a huge carbonara fan. Best carbonara I've ever had. I had that first night after an 11 and a half hour plane ride and a couple of glasses of Chianti. But it was spectacular. Mm, spectacular. Yes. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.